Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Good morning. Our reading today will be uh, in the ESV translation from the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Please be seated. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 2, if you're not there already. Context is kind of an important thing, right? Context matters. When we speak, when we read, when we we hear something, none of us want to be taken out of context. Passages of Scripture are better understood in context There's a reason we go to the historical context as we're looking at a passage of Scripture because it's really helpful for us to understand the times in which these things were written. What was going on socially, politically, religiously? What's going on in the scene? And so historical context is paramount for us not only to better understand what was taking place in a given time period, but why it's taking place. It's really important. And so what are the social customs when it comes to art and science, medicine, politics, religion, are all influenced and influencers during that season. If somebody 2,000 years from now wants to find out what was going on, they got to understand like what we were dealing with in our time period, right? It's really helpful for them to know and understand what's going on in this season of life right now, why we do some of the things we do. It just makes sense. And so... Uh, It's really helpful. Now, we consider the letters. Most of the letters in the New Testament are occasional documents. These things were written for a reason. Something precipitated them. There was an occasion, usually an issue or perceived problem, as to why these documents were written. And so none of these single letters contains all the theological information that we need to know, right? Not one of those letters does. But all of these combined tell us exactly what God wants us to know about who he is and who we are in relation to him. 
And so it's really helpful for us to better understand what was taking place when these letters were written. So usually, as we're going through and we're teaching through a book or a letter of the Bible, we're looking at all the historical context as much as we can. We're trying to place ourselves there. We're trying to understand the, the mindset and the, the culture and, and what is going on. Why is this written? Well, as we're considering the five solas of the Reformation, it's really helpful for us to understand the historical context as to why we're even speaking about these today. I failed to understand the historical context of the Reformation. I really, I really knew very little, we'll say next to nothing, about it, and I struggled with the five solas. I struggled with this idea of justification being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, what we understand through the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. And you're like, you're pastoring here? You, <laughs> you struggle to understand this stuff? Like, well, where's the disconnect? What's so hard to understand? I understood faith and grace and Jesus and Scriptures and God's glory. It's this word alone that I was wrestling with and struggled with and had, you know, for a long time, struggled with this idea of alone. How can justification be alone when you've got all these, these five things crammed together? And so the equation for me was faith plus grace plus Jesus plus scriptures plus glory of God equals justification. So what does this alone mean? Where does alone fit into the equation? And this is where we have to take a step back in time and understand the historical context to consider why the sola is so important, so vital to the Reformation. Why is this word alone or only so significant? This morning we're going to be talking about sola gratia. Alone combated the heresy of adding anything to the gospel. This is what they were dealing with. There's so many facets to the gospel. The gospel is not relegated to these five things. There's so many things about our salvation, about the gospel that's so rich. The gospel is so beautiful, it's so glorious, that there's words that just take volumes to unpack. What does justification mean? What does propitiation mean? What does it mean for you to be in Christ? What does it mean for us to be adopted, to be redeemed, to be forgiven? Reconciliation. There's all these different aspects of the gospel, and this morning we're going to zoom in on one aspect of the gospel. But let me ask, what weighs more, a pound of bricks or a pound of feathers? We all get asked that question as a kid, right? And you're like, mm, I know this one. I know you're trying to trick me. But and as a kid, we're just like, ugh. And so we all have an uncle or a grandpa who's tried to stump us with this. And I don't think that they're trying to educate us, get us to think. They're trying to find someone they're actually smarter than, right? And so as we wrestle with this as a kid... It's not as funny when we walk into adulthood and we're wrestling with the question, what weighs more? Our good works or our bad works? Well, now that's personal, right? <laughs> now we're really weighing this thing emotionally. This thing hits us at the core of who we are. What outweighs the other? Our good works or our bad works? Our merits or demerits? How do we get the scales to tip in our favor? 
What must we do to balance the scales or correct the ledger? And then how in the world do we ever know when we've done enough? At what point can we go from rest rather than from exhaustion and just being worn out going, I can't do it anymore. Every other religion deals with our personal performance on this basis of merit demerit, on tipping the scales and trying to do enough, be enough, perform enough good works to outweigh our bad performance. And at the end of the day, we don't even step back often to go, who's the best judge of my performance anyway? My vantage point's so limited. Am I the best one to be judging all this and assessing all this anyway? If God's doing it and he knows everything, good night. My motives are now even being questioned. And so we wrestle with this. Where exactly in the Bible does it tell us that our works, our effort, our performance operates on such a system? If Scripture alone is our source of authority, and it surely is, and we heard about this last week, then what does it have to say about this idea of grace and merit? Our desire this morning is to consider the magnitude and the significance of solo gratia, grace alone, and not works. So a quick history lesson. This is not a strength of mine. I want you to, if you have an outline, uh, there is a a little bit of a highlight reel, if you will, on the Reformation and Martin Luther's life. I included the website in there because that timeline is significant. It is really impressive. And Pastor Pat keeps talking about how all this stuff is not done in a vacuum. And you're like, what does that mean? It means other things were going on in time and history while this was going on. Just like as we're gathered here today, there's other stuff going on globally. That timeline is going to share with you some other things that are taking place during that timeline in the 14 and 1500s. And so you would do yourself well to avail yourselves of it. I think you'll find it fascinating, very interesting stuff. But to understand a little bit of the historical context, it's helpful for us to identify the problem. And the truth is, life's always complicated. But corruption and scandal and theological compromise was running amok for centuries. What could go wrong, right? Power corrupts. Therefore, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it's at this point in history that the Roman Catholic Church was the dominant Christian church. It was the dominant species. It held sway over political powers of the day, over most of Europe, and was essentially a world power in itself. To be Christian was to be Catholic. At the close of the 15th century, it was clear that there was a need to reform the church. Not only were the church leaders from the top morally corrupt, They were licentious and immoral and just, it really seems a lot like Ezekiel 34 when uh, Israel's uh, priests and religious leaders and shepherds are being challenged and going, man, you should be shepherding the sheep and you're doing just the opposite and all you care about is yourself. And so there wasn't just a need for moral reform in the church, but there was also a need for theological reform. And as is the case... These issues are typically compounded. 
and the compromises that were made over long periods of time finally came to a head in this idea that you keep hearing about during the Reformation of indulgences. So what exactly are indulgences? Is it helpful to know the definition of terms? Is it helpful to know that we're not talking about a truffle or other sweet decadent treats? Is that helpful? Because I know what indulgence is. I'm going to try to do that for lunch. I'm going to try to indulge myself. This is not that. Indulgences are basically payment to either eliminate our sin debt or help us get out of purgatory. And so it was payment of some significant amount of coin, money. I don't think they had Bitcoin back then, but they had a significant amount of money that they could use to buy these indulgences to either secure salvation or get um, a lesson sentence in purgatory. And so you have some other financial things going on during that time. Um, the Roman Catholic Church was really struggling financially in a lot of ways. And so this was a way to bolster what they needed. And there was a secret agreement made that some of these indulgences and the monies, the funds collected from them would go to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica. And so now you've got uh, people like Tetzel coming in with his extravagant claims because he's a salesman, and if he can get more money and sell more indulgences, this thing happens quicker and better, and, and everyone's happy. Now, can you imagine being the president in the pew going, man, this is about a third of a year's salary compared to eternity. <laughs> Putting food on the table. I mean, we can uh, cinch our, our belts just a little bit during this time, but just weighing this option, and I'm being told by my religious leaders that this is the path. It would have been really, really a, a struggle, I think, personally. So you have Tetzel peddling indulgences. Now in Wittenberg, he wasn't allowed or permitted to do this. So what did he do? He set up shop right outside. <laughs> you know, the, the villages, the towns, the areas next door. And so people from Wittenberg would go and they would pay for these indulgences and then they would bring back and show Luther the pardon for sins that they received. Luther's outraged. And as a result, we get the 95 Theses to combat theological error. Now at the time, and you've heard this, so I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but Luther wasn't looking to break from the Catholic Church. He was looking to reform it. He thought that there needed to be some change theologically, ecclesiastically, at least morally, but theology was driving this. And so one of the Fab Five issues that Luther was dealing with was this idea of it being by grace alone, sola gratia. The Catholic understanding of grace can be described as follows. Terms and definitions matter because how we use these things, we're going to use similar language in our understanding of this. But the Catholic understanding of grace, and this is not exhaustive, is God's unmerited favor and love infused, this is a trigger word, infused, as opposed to imputed. It's infused by the Holy Spirit to an individual through the sacraments of baptism and Eucharist. 
This grace has the effect of driving out sin and can be referred to as justifying grace. Such grace is combined with merit in cooperation with the Holy Spirit through these means of grace. But grace for the Catholic Church is like a shot of adrenaline that boosts your spiritual performance. And righteousness is a God-given ability to live a righteous life if you work at it. Baptism gives you a kickstart and the Mass gives you a boost along the way. But it's up to you to live a righteous life that will win God's approval. So the net result is grace plus works and faith plus works. Luther had a different view on this. It's interesting to know that in the timeline Luther had just done about a year before, he had done his study in Romans, and he's doing these lectures on Romans, and then in Galatians. And so you can imagine how immersion in the letter to the Romans and to the Galatians has impacted him. You hear a lot about Romans 1.17 being one of these first dominoes that pushes him going, what in the world's going on with this righteousness? See, no one denied that we needed to be righteous or the fact that we weren't righteous. It's how do we get this thing? How do we secure this righteousness from God? And so a highlight reel, if we're going to watch a trailer of Romans just on this idea of loan, here's what it would look like. In Romans three twenty three, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That continues, Romans 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Further in Romans 5, it says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hence, this idea of solo gratia, Grace alone, grace only, and not merit. Grace defined by sola scriptura is unmerited favor. It's a gift. This is something that God gives us. It's to be received. And so we might use the terms unmerited favor if we add to it plus my merit, we've discounted it. We've disqualified it. Furthermore, historically, the Council of Trent and the the many councils that met afterwards is a Catholic response to the Protestant Reformation 
in it, several canons combating these truths are leveled. They're trying to combat all of these alones. So as we transition from this brief history lesson, considering the context and why we're talking about solo gratia, grace alone this morning, I want to draw our attention back to the biblical text. Can we remember what was read just a few moments ago at our call to worship from Ephesians chapter 1? If you're in your Bibles, look at Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. I won't read it again for sake of time, but what Pastor Pat read for us is just glorious. As I'm meditating on Ephesians this week and last week in preparation for this, it's so overwhelming, and to try to, to write and craft and even do this, this homily manuscript kind of a thing, no one does it better than Paul through the Holy Spirit. Like, this section of Scripture is so... It's like this DNA strand that is just so compact with so much information that you could start stretching this thing out and we could do laps around the church because there's so much packed into this. But what if this was actually true? Just how glorious is this grace in which we stand? This is what Paul's writing about. This glorious grace of God on display to us through the person and work of Christ. Just how glorious is this? What's meant by the words lavish, immeasurable, riches, gift? It all sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? It sounds too good to be true. But what if? What if it were true? What if we really did stand in this voluptuous grace, this impressive grace, this over-the-top, superabounding grace. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, he tells us that we're chosen by the Father, we're redeemed by the Son, and sealed by the Spirit. In love, the Father chose us to be his adopted sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. And at this point, I would hit the pause button. Say, let's just stop for a second. Let's break. Let's grab this text, and we're going to sit down. And now it's story time with crazy Uncle Giles. And we're going to read from Ephesians 1. And we're going to read it slow. And we're going to meditate on this. And we're going to contemplate it. We We don't have that kind of time this morning, do we? So here is my encouragement to you is sometime when you have alone time, when you can break away from all the distractions and all the crazy and just get alone and read this slowly and prayerfully and let these words soak in and penetrate your heart and your mind. You might have to take a walk and plug your earbuds in and hit play and just let whose ever-soothing voice take you away through Ephesians 1, but don't stop there, go into chapter 2, go into chapter 3, and just see and hear and feel the weight of this text. 
it really is this impressive. Paul is using exaggerated language to describe an indescribable God. How can we wrap our tiny little minds around this? There was nothing, absolutely nothing desirable in us that forced the Father's hand. When we were at our worst, he chose us. Wow. When we were at our worst, he chose us. When we wanted nothing to do with him, he loved us. When we were completely helpless and hopeless, he rescued us for himself. This was his choice to adopt us into his family, to the praise of his glorious grace. And as a result of his purpose, we are truly blessed in the beloved, Ephesians 1.6. It's because of him. But not only that, he rescued us by this grace. Redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses, all because of the riches of his grace lavished upon us. At just the right time in history, God sent forth his son to come in, to break in on the scene in time and space and enact the Father's loving plan. And he provided a full payment for our sin debt through his blood. Redemption, forgiveness, and reconciliation are ours according to the lavish riches of this grace on display at Calvary. That's why we make much of the cross. Can we even begin to digest what the lavish riches of grace entail? Paul uses this language of lavish. It's extravagant language. Working synonyms. Extravagant, unrestrained, generous, over the top. The hymn writer Julia H. Johnson tried to, she attempted to grasp what this grace Entailed. She tried to describe it in her hymn, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. And she describes it this way. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. She goes on, freely bestowed on all who believe. But not only are we rescued by this grace... But the Holy Spirit secures us. The consequences of us being adopted into this family of God, it's going to take us an eternity to unpack. And in fact, Paul will say in chapter 2, verse 7, that's exactly what God has in store for us. He's going to spend all eternity unpacking these wonderful riches, but we're not there yet, so let's not rush ahead. But we have an inheritance. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit secures us. And tells us that we have an inheritance and it will not disappoint us. The Holy Spirit ensures that we will experience the lavish riches of his grace now and forevermore. And so then what Paul does, it's so cool. As he wraps up chapter 1, he prays for the church. He knows that we're trying to wrap our mind around this, this indescribable God. And we can't do it. So what he does is he prays for the church that we would fully grasp all that we have in the person and work of Christ. That we'd be able to comprehend, understand 
this grace in which we stand, that we would have the capacity as humans to grasp what is ours in reality. And that's what he's doing in verses 15 through the end of the chapter. So he prays that God would open our eyes so that we'd be able to see with great clarity all the riches that are ours in Jesus. That we would be able to comprehend, wrap our minds around just how impressive Jesus is. And then he goes into chapter 2. So based on one, based on chapter one and who God is and what he's done and all he's secured for us, now we walk into chapter two and it's really helpful for us to understand uh, and the way that we do understand is usually complex and it's done through picture and illustration. You know, when you take complex truths, it's really, really nice when people break them down and it's really simple. And we often understand these complex truths when it's done by picture and illustration through metaphor or simile or when we use this contrast and comparison language. Well, this is what Paul's doing now. As we walk into chapter 2, he is contrasting what we just saw in chapter 1 with this dark reality. Paul uses this to expose just how desperate we are as humans. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 are very common to us. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked or lived, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Hmm. That doesn't sound too good. We'll read it quickly and we'll move on, right? But are we really that hopeless? Are things really that dark? Are we really that helpless? Just how dead are we, really? Is this just poetic language? But Paul writes this and it's set against the backdrop of this unprecedented glory and majesty of God's grace. What we just saw in chapter 1, now he contrasts completely with this dark reality. Just how grotesque, just how pervasive. I'm not a horror film guy. I never could watch horror films. It doesn't do it for me. It may do it for you. But I can't think of any horror film that could capture verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 and do an accurate job. I just don't think, I mean, as scary as some of these trailers are, this is scarier. I think that zombie-type movies are about the only ones that are kind of relate because you've got this idea of the walking dead. And that's what we are, apart from Christ. And we don't even realize it. The extent of our depravity envelops our entire being, and it permeates the entire of humanity. It is that pervasive. It is that dark. As minions of the dark prince of this world, we live as beasts mindlessly pursuing our passions and devouring our darkest desires apart from Christ. So unless something is done on our behalf, our entire existence is lived under the reign of death. 
and our end is to experience the wrath of God. So our condition is dire. We need a cure. And then we jump into verse 4 that says, but God. Talk about a contrast. More glorious words of relief and rescue have yet to be uttered. But God. It really was that dark. We really were that hopeless. I know we like to think the best about ourselves. I know we like to minimize the, the reality of things. But God steps in on the scene and our rescuer has arrived. Our cure has come. Our hope is realized. The indescribable God on display in chapter 1 comes to our rescue when we were hopelessly and helplessly lost. In what he is talking about in chapter 1, he now fills in this picture in more depth in chapter 2. You see, in chapter 2, Paul is exploring in greater detail why we find our identity in Christ as the adopted children of God. And in verse 4, it's based on who God is. The text says he's rich in mercy. This is who our God is. He chose to be merciful to us. Remember all the way back in Exodus when Moses asked God, who are you? And then show me your glory. And God connects his name with his glory. And he says, this is what you are to tell my people about who I am. I am merciful. And in Exodus, he says, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I will mercy who I want to. I will demonstrate this mercy. They don't deserve it. But who we are is based on who God is. What we've received is based on who God is. This God who shows mercy because he is merciful. It's based on what he's done. In verse 5, it says that he made us alive together with Christ. The resurrection is so crucial. We don't have a dead Savior. We have a risen Savior, a living Savior. It doesn't stop at the cross. And not only are we made alive together with Christ, but he's raised us up with Christ. And he's positioned us, verse 6 says, in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 10 tells us that we are his workmanship. We're a masterpiece crafted by God. And he's crafted this masterpiece, this handiwork to accomplish these purposes. Good works are a consequence of who we are. They're a product of his hand. And it's also based on how God has acted. Verse 5 says that grace saves us. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Both grace and faith, in fact, are a gift from God in verse 8. This is how he acts. He demonstrates his mercy. He gives us grace. He gives us faith. But why? Why does God do this? Who we are is based on why 
he has chosen to do this, why he has acted. Go back up to verse 4. Not only is he merciful, but it's because of his great love wherewith he loved us. This is who our God is. This is how he acts. And why he chooses to act this way toward us. I love what verse 7 says. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What we will be doing for eternity is going to be multifaceted, but it won't be a this. It won't be an endless church service, which you, you grow up as a kid going, I don't know if I want to go there. This is so boring. But as an adult, when you see this is who we are, this is what we have, this is what we possess, for all eternity, we are going to be learning and understanding and growing, and God's going to be unpacking to us the inexhaustible reality of His grace. This text just draws me in like a tractor beam, and I just can't get away from it. But then we get to verses 8 and 9. Solo gratia. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The historical context, we needed to hear grace alone because what was being preached was unmerited grace plus merit. It is by grace alone and not works. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. And the text proclaims it. We are saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing. You cannot justify yourself. We have to get to the place where we realize we can't. Those are refreshing words. We don't like them at first until you try hard enough, long enough, and you finally fall off the cliff. I, I, I can't. I, I really can't. Good. Now we can start. You can't. The problem is, is we think that we can the problem is, is we want to still bring something into this equation. The problem is, is that we want to be able to go, well, look what I did. It might be this sliver and God did all of this, but look what I did. And we polish that little piece. You know, it's like we're so proud of that little thing, right? Like we're in the credit somewhere and the only one that can find it is like your mom because she cares. The movie's not even about you. And yet that's how we, we treat this thing. It's by grace that we're saved through faith. And this is a gift from God. This grace, this faith is a gift from God. This gift is to be received. It's not our own doing. It's not our own merit. It's a gift. It's not a result of works. Can Paul be even more clear? I don't think he can. If you are trying to earn, to merit, to add to... You can't. It is not a result of your works. Why? I cannot boast in me. I have no 
footing to boast on, look what I have done. Look at me. Look what I brought to this equation. The only thing I bring in is my is verses 1 through 3. <laughs> Brokenness, deadness, decay. It's, it's dark. That's all I bring into this equation. But God, because he's rich in mercy, because of the great love or which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. He lavishes his grace on us so that we cannot boast in anyone other than the person and work of Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. So what are we to do with the scale of our good works and our bad works? What are we to do with that? Our merit and demerit. Grace doesn't play that game. Grace doesn't tip the scales in our favor. Grace annihilates the scales altogether. Grace destroys any thought of us bringing anything into this equation that somehow our good, whatever that is, even though Scripture says our righteousness is as filthy rags, grace just annihilates the scales, eliminates the ledger, and says you have nothing. Here's how Paul says it in Colossians chapter 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Did you hear that? Here's what God did. He canceled the debt. This is what Jesus said on the cross. Paid in full. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame, triumphing over them in him. Sola gratia. Grace alone. The scene was hopelessly dark, but God. All was marked by de- depravity, decay, and death. But God. We were orphans under a dark regime. But God. How could he? Why would he? Solo gratia. Grace alone. Maybe you're here today and... You are trying to merit, earn favor with God. You see, in the historical context, this was dealing primarily with justification. I don't think that's our main struggle today, although it is in a lot of different, because every other religion is trying to merit self-salvation. How can we be good with this God, whatever God we view? So it's always this man-centered approach to save ourselves. And yet in our context, what we don't apply in our justification, we do in our sanctification. And we try to make this whole Christian life this thing where we just cooperate with God by his grace. Sanctification is just as much 
grace alone as justification is. So what are we trying to bring to this equation that, you know, we can go, hey, look at this. Polish it and pet it and put it on the wall. We look to one and his performance was sufficient. It's by grace alone. Father, thank you for this opportunity just to really gather, slow down amidst the busyness of our our week. Work pressures, family pressures, health concerns, you fill in the blank, and now we're approaching the holidays where life just gets really super crazy, and we need to be reminded of things we already know like today, that your grace is enough. Thank you for your grace. I echo what the Apostle Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, that you would grant us eyes that can see with clarity just how marvelous this grace is in which we stand, that we could grasp, that we could comprehend, that we'd be able to just even get a glimpse of this indescribable God and that our hearts would just be refreshed by the reality that you have done it all on our behalf and you've given us this amazing gift of your Son and you've pardoned us and you've made us right with you and you've adopted us into your family and you call us beloved. Thank you for your mercy and for your grace. Let us not diminish it in any way by thinking we bring anything to this equation that you would be proud of. Thank you for being proud of us because we belong to you. We're your kids. And you love us because of our identity and your son. So be glorified as we continue to worship you by even celebrating these, these elements that... Remind us of your glorious grace on display by giving up your one and only Son on our behalf. In Christ's name, amen.